Support for Decoder comes from SAP Business AI. Sure, we've all had fun messing around with AI image generators and conversation bots, but AI is more than a novelty. Businesses around the world have found ways to harness its potential, like spotting inventory shortages before they happen or supporting supply chain management. And it's very possible that your business could benefit from AI integration too. Unlock the potential of AI and discover even more possibilities with SAP Business AI. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Learn more at sap.com AI. Support for this show comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you may need Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Editor-at-Large of Recode. You may know me as someone who's using her time in quarantine wisely, by which I mean watching Top Gun every single night. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair, I am thrilled to have Samantha Power, the former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations from 2013 to 2017. She's also a professor of practice at Harvard Kennedy School and Harvard Law School. And last year, she published a best-selling memoir, which is really wonderful, called The Education of an Idealist. Ambassador Power, welcome to Recode Decode. Great to be here, Karen. Um, so I, I do want to, one of the things that I want to talk about was the book, because I think we're sort of in this time that I, that I think we do need a lot more idealists now. We had been in such a cynical era, era for most of the Trump uh, presidency so far. And I want to talk a little bit about how you're looking back on writing your memoir and your book. What would you call yourself now? I mean, a realist? A, what, what are, and hmm. what is America right now? Uh, well, America above all is divided. Um, so that's unanswerable uh, in the whole. But I, I think in terms of myself, I mean, my definition of idealism is pretty modest. You know, you think things are going well the way it's going? If not, chances are there's some set of standards you have or some set of aspirations where you'd like things to bend a little bit in that direction. And I think the hardest and second leap to make is do you feel you have a hand in making some small change in, in bridging that gap between where you want to get and where we are? And so, you know, it's not some airy fairy sense of the world as a utopia or, sure. or anything like that. And I think the more I, I went from being a journalist and a commentator into the belly of the beast, uh, the more actually affirmed I was in a belief that people can turn rooms, um, you know, change history reverse setbacks, uh, make mistakes for sure, but uh, learn and grow. And, and so I, I, I just saw people all around me on the outside and the inside making a difference. So I guess in that sense, my idealism is deepened by my experience, but my uh, realism about the world that I see around me and all that is broken in it, um, you know, gets uh, also 
hardened <laughs> in many ways every day. Through working at it. Now, why don't you, I'd love you to assess sort of the situation right now. We have been in a, uh, I would say, not even realist, an isolationist sort of ignorant uh, administration. And we've been faced with a global pandemic, which draws you into the world. Um, can you sort of give me a, a landscape right now from your perspective of how, what is the world landscape right now in terms of the pandemic? And how do you look at, you know, the, there was sort of a retrenchment from globalism. How do you see it right now? And what do you imagine is going to come out of this? Yeah, well, let me let me start with the, the kind of where we are. I mean, you know, Ronald Reagan went to the UN in the 80s, uh, mid 80s, I think, and made a speech. This was in the height of the Cold War. And he was talking about a desire for peace. And he said, maybe it'll take an alien invasion for uh -huh. us to come together. Yeah. And we have the, our alien invasion, right? right. This is the moment right. where uh, we have so much to learn from, for example, those countries uh, that the pandemic struck before us. You know, this kind of staggered spread is arguably an advantage in terms of preparation and response. We have to pool our resources to help uh, vulnerable communities within our own borders, of course, but also internationally, because as long as the pandemic is raging somewhere, it is likely at a minimum to prevent the return of economic normalcy here and in other uh, developed countries. And more maximally, given travel ties and trade and family ties, it, you know, it's going to mean that as long as there are, again, raging pockets and hotspots, even from an epidemiological perspective until we get a vaccine, that's an indirect threat to us as well. So, so you would think that this would be the One moment would where yeah. <laughs> you would think um, where the aliens have come and we pool our resources. But ideology is a stubborn thing. The desire for scapegoats as well has crept in. You know, it's sort of chicken and egg because the pandemic was so mishandled by the current American administration. Uh, there then becomes this effort to look for fall guys. Um, and because there's a predisposition to be skeptical of science experts and international organizations, a kind of perfect storm in a pandemic, the WHO, the World Health Organization becomes a leading candidate. And there's much to criticize. I mean, we'll talk about that uh, in the initial response. But but so what the United States has done is turned its back on the WHO, now indeed even threatening to leave the WHO, um, which is an even more dramatic step than I ever imagined in my worst, most re realism-bound fears about what this administration would do. But, but, you know, cutting funding at the height of the biggest pandemic in 100 years doesn't only to starve the organization of significant resources from the number one donor it is also fueling or contributing to a collective action problem because what you learn when you work in international organizations or, or observe them up close is the extent to which that collective action problem persists even amid organizations designed to solve that problem. So you need a catalyst, you need a team captain, a leader, just like you do in any group. And so it's really that as much as the money that has been in the early months of this pandemic devastating to have the U.S. on the sidelines because no other country has that muscle memory. Now, China is trying to rehabilitate its reputation from having covered up the pandemic and exacerbated it and really um, grossly mishandled it by now stepping into the breach and trying to fill that void. And unfortunately, from the standpoint of long-term global cooperation, the more that we pull back, the more space there is for China to take leadership, the more China takes leadership and tries to, again, be that rallying uh, team captain, 
then the more that people who are skeptical of China and skeptical of international organizations have that to point to as a justification for pulling back. And so we end up really uh, on the sidelines, but also seeing a form of leadership that in, in the medium and long run is not going to be good no, for our no. balance. We don't, China-led world order is not, not well, I was I, I talk about that often with the internet. I think I've been writing about it for two years now. Like, we yes. don't want China to run the internet. We don't want them to step into the breach technologically. Uh, from a defense point of view, you know, their movement technologically is really contributing to their ability to put defenses up all around the world and then contribute to companies, you know, everything from 5G to everything. It's not the it's not the country we want to lead on the internet, for example, and the digital future. But in terms of, of this, the idea of them stepping in and us stepping back, when you say it wasn't in your worst nightmare, talk a little bit about, I'd love to, you know, you were in the middle of the Ebola crisis, which was, I think, a, a response that really worked in the Obama administration, which is probably why it doesn't get a lot of attention because it worked, right? It wasn't, there wasn't a disaster. There wasn't a worldwide pandemic, very dangerous disease. Um, talk a little bit about how that was coordinated and why that worked. Yes. And I'll apply the lessons as best I can. I mean, the, what was so noteworthy was the, even with an engaged United States, paying our dues uh, at the UN, at the World Health Organization, taking leadership of coalitions, the UN, again, on its own, doesn't have, at the civil servant level, the ability itself to mobilize the kind of global coalition that was needed to end the Ebola epidemic in West Africa. And so what President Obama did was he saw the the charts. Now everybody's familiar with these curves. It was the first curve of that nature that I had ever seen in the Situation Room. There's just a loud gulp followed by a long pause as we saw a curve that projected 1.4 million infections and the widespread of uh, the Ebola epidemic from West Africa, Liberia, Guinea, and Sierra Leone into European countries to the United States and beyond. That was what was going to happen. But Team Captain Obama, Captain America, came in and said, not on my watch. We will contribute 3,000 health workers and troops, but we will do so in order to get other countries to step up to do far more. And this is, of course, a message that President Trump has driven home about, you know, burden sharing and the United States getting ripped off by the international order. Quite the contrary. By making those investments, you get other countries to pool their resources. And you insist that they do. You use your diplomatic pressure and, and again, try to create a kind of price of admission to being part of these coalitions. So as we took leadership in the country of Liberia, the British government took leadership in Sierra Leone, backing their government and their people on the ground. The French took point uh, in Guinea. Again, those are the three countries with massive infections. China built, uh, you know, uh, Ebola treatment units and labs, trying to keep up with us a little already, that competition afoot. Cuba sent more doctors per capita than any other country. Malaysia sent tens of thousands of pairs of rubber gloves. It, w it really is a great example that I'm glad you pointed to because the international system, so often we see its very dramatic and devastating failures. But this is an example of when it works, why does it work? It works above all because the local people on the ground are risking their lives to help their neighbors and their families. They're changing their cultural practices overnight. They're listening, they're growing, they're, you know, they're, they're, they want to save lives. Their bravery was the sine qua non for everything. But then the collective action problem was solved by one particular country, the most powerful country in the world, stepping forward, but not simply stepping forward and pretending to be the world's policeman, but rather 
in like a pickup basketball game, you know, uh, galvanizing uh, contributions from others. The other key dimension of it, which is something we have to worry about in the long term, was this, you might remember, was where uh, then private citizen Trump began to really make his presence felt in the political sphere. This was long before he was thinking about, or at least we knew he was thinking about being a presidential candidate, but he began tweeting, you know, don't let the health workers who go and help the people of West Africa come home, you know, Ebola, we're going to have ISIS people coming across the southern border carrying Ebola, you know, combining all of the dark forces. Yes, the, uh, that the well-known Ebola caravan. So. Indeed, the Ebola yeah. caravans. And it got a lot of play. It mm -hmm. got a lot of play, of course, on Fox. Um, but it also, you know, became a factor in our politics. And you saw even Democratic politicians very spooked, not at all sure they wanted to embrace the path that, that President Obama was recommending. And honestly, Kara, I look back uh, to this was in 2014, just before the midterm elections. I don't know if Congress had been in session when President Obama was rolling out those decisions, whether we would have been able to do what we did. They were on recess, they were back, they were running for re-election. And that's a sort of sad yeah. <laughs> testament to uh, the state of the health of our democracy that you kind of have to breathe a sigh of relief that given the success of fear-mongering, we may have moved away from the science and the evidence-based approach, not, not because the Obama administration would have, but because they control the purse strings, which was a huge part of what one needed, resources uh, to move. And one of the things in that crisis, as I recall, was a lot of technological help uh, from the private sector, Gates Foundation and others. It's another thing that's sort of missing from this response is this sort of governmental, private public sector cooperation. Well, you're, I mean, at some point, um, maybe even worth having a show on what Korea has done in right. the face of this pandemic, because mm -hmm. there's exactly your point. They issued a call, having learned from SARS and MERS, which went very badly wrong. Their first move was to the private sector at the highest levels. And the, and the president of Korea today had been in the opposition uh, when MERS got, uh, got out of hand. And uh, he basically said, I can't do this alone. The United States and the Republic of Korea had our first cases on the same day. Korea has whipped the, the pandemic, uh, uh, you know, at least one can never be too confident, but uh, up to this point, and we are, of course, reeling from it, uh, in part because that partnership was not the kind of cliche of public-private partnership. It was a lived partnership where testing, contact tracing, so much that, that government may not be nimble enough to do was farmed out, um, you know, both to the non-governmental sector and to the private sector. Mm -hmm. So when you look at this crisis, what do you think has to, here we are is where we are, um, and the lack of response, the lack, the, the continued attacks on the World Health Organization, the continued attacks on immigration. Uh, you yourself are an immigrant, by the way, correct? Is that correct? Yeah. Unless, yes, I always point out most of the he, the people who run technology are all immigrants, almost who run most of the tech, the big tech companies are pretty much all immigrants, from Elon Musk to Sergey Brin to Satya Nadella to Sundar Pichai. If you really think about it, it's really interesting. And the person, if, I'm, if I may just interrupt for a second, the person that Donald Trump has put in charge of Operation Warp Speed mm -hmm. to try to develop the vaccine as quickly as possible, also, is, I believe, in is what, But it's this anti, yeah. this sort of closed border approach, and then anything goes within the borders right now. As you know, you're seeing all these images uh, around the country. What do you imagine has to happen right now to change that? Or is the decision made... We're just going to see how many people die and then it'll go away. 
Within the United States, you yeah, mean? and abroad, because this has to, because once these borders open up and we get to travel to Europe or, or Asia or various places, there's obviously a danger continues until there's a vaccine. Well, I think what you've seen are attempts at workarounds from the federal, the calamitous and catastrophic federal government's response. So whether that's community workarounds where contact tracing is happening on the fly in neighborhoods or shopping angels where, you know, those kinds of um, match.coms are happening using technology and not using technology, but above all, uh, subnational actors, states uh, just saying we better get on with it because we can't rely on the federal government, um, which, you know, on one level, you can have the governor of Maryland hustling to secure imports from the Republic of Korea. Uh, that's not an ideal use of his time. At the time, you know, he might be uh, better served using his, you know, having the federal government perform its constitutional role uh, advancing our foreign interests or our national security interests. But with the federal government not doing that, you're, you're just seeing the organism adapt. And so lots of state actors taking on foreign policy roles for themselves, whether in California, New York, Maryland, and beyond, You've seen that also just in parallel on climate, of course, uh, as mayors, governors, the private sector try to pool their resources to to kind of mitigate the damage caused by the U.S. pulling back from the Paris Climate Agreement for similar reasons to those reasons that we have so mishandled the the pandemic. In terms of where it goes, that's a stopgap. You know, it doesn't help those states when they're looking for federal resources. So, you know, when political polarization impedes Congress's willingness to assist working Americans who've just been laid off, um, that's where it just gets heartbreaking, the limits of what states can do by themselves. Um, I think- So what would you uh, do? Say right now you're suddenly in charge. What would you do now? Something if, happened. Yeah. So if I'm, you not, were, I'm not surrounded by people who don't believe in no, science. No, science. No, you're just, here you are. <laughs> I'm not, what would, I'm not what would be the actions? To, in, but you have the situation. You have the situation you have. We are where we are. What would be the three things you would do right now from a, a governing point of view? Okay. Uh, and we're talking domestically, again, Domestic, not my, both. Not my it area of expertise. It has to be. But, okay, yeah, no, so, no, internationally, because it's it's an international response. Okay, so, so several things. First, on the domestic front, separating science from from politics and politicians. And so doing and learning from what other countries are doing, you know, making sure that you have briefings, educating people uh, that are science led with no large politician, but if it's me or anybody else looming over the scientists, hoping uh, that they'll answer the question in the way that you seek uh, and implying by virtue of the fact that you fired anyone who disagrees with you, that if they don't answer in the way that you seek, uh, they will uh, lose their jobs or get demoted. So just separating that out and having science-based leadership from the White House. Uh, as part of that, of course, you have to try, because of polarization, to bring Republican officials very much into the fold. So if I'm a Democrat and I'm governing right now, uh, it's hugely important to me to have Governor DeWine from Ohio be with me or with the cause and and showing people around the country that this is not a political issue. This is fundamentally about how to balance the economic hardships and the public health risks, a very hard calculus, even if there's no ideology uh, involved, a very hard cost benefit to do. And ones that even, you know, right thinking evidence, uh, uh, reviewing individuals, they're making those calls differently in different places, even if it's not about 
you know, libertarianism or standing up to the man or, or rejecting science. So, so that's the first thing is, uh, again, separating politics and science, but also trying to bring a kind of bipartisan uh, sort of tenor uh, to the way that leadership is being conducted internationally. And this, I mean, this is relevant for whoever takes uh, office in, in, in January, 2021, if it is uh, vice president Biden, definitely saying we're back and returning to the international organizations from which we have fled, seeking to work with Congress to get resource deployments commensurate to the scale of this pandemic and the damage it is doing uh, all around the world, but particularly again in, in, the, in the most vulnerable parts of the world, uh, making the case domestically as we do that, that that is central to our own interests, which is not something people believe in many quarters after years of Trump telling them that the world is a dangerous place that only brings harm, uh, you know, and that you can build walls to insulate yourself from it. And so, again, returning to international organizations in that way. But I think more than than has been done in the past, there needs to be a coalition of democracies mobilized, um, you know, whether it's to learn from one another and, and, and sort of um, uh, buck one another up in fighting misinformation, you know, take Taiwan's lead on how to fight disinformation and have those best practices be applied consistent with laws and norms uh, in other Western democracies whether it's standing up to China at the ITU as they try to revamp the, the rules uh, surrounding the internet or in the Human Rights Council where they're seeking to chip away at human rights norms. Because remember, it's to the, from the Chinese government perspective, as long as there is a body of rights to which one's own citizens can appeal when their government is abusing them, that's a threat to the Chinese model. The, the Chinese model is state consent. The state will tell you what your what your rights are. And they've been doing it very subtly and, and I think in, in quite a sophisticated way, but bit by bit, just trying to chip away at, at what grew out of the Second World War, the recognition that you can't look away from events inside other countries' borders and act as though they are not your, your problem. Uh, it tends to be a very dangerous predictor of how states are going to act beyond their borders. And you need some set of principles that are higher than national law. Uh, recall, again, the, the laws that the Germans put in place in state after state. Those were legitimate laws. They were, you know, devised by the state. And so the idea from the founders of the UN was that you'd have a set of principles against which those laws and, and the treatment of citizens would be measured. Well, China hates that and wants to go back in time. And so um, that coalition of democracies would be a critical part, again, of returning to international institutions. And the last thing I'd say, just because it picks up on the point that you made, is when I look back even just three and a half years to the Obama years, the networks and the and the bodies that we have, whether to deal with public health calamities or other kinds of global threats, are all far too statist for the 21st century. They're too intergovernmental. And we experimented, we in the Obama administration created something called the Open Government Partnership, which combines technology actors, the private sector, civil society, and governments. It's one of the first kind of really avant-garde, um, multi-stakeholder initiatives specifically dedicated to fighting corruption and promoting transparency and using technology and other tools to do so. It's a small initiative. I mean, it has a lot of countries that are members of it, but it's path-breaking in, in this multi-sectoral approach. You cannot deal, whether with a pandemic or some low-grade health crisis, with only governments at the table. And yet our structures, as we see from the World Health Assembly that's meeting 
uh, right now, it's governments, yes. it's people with badges yes. around their necks I've with seen pictures them. of themselves. Seen, You've seen yeah, them. And, yeah. And they can't do it. And there's right. a reason Bill Gates in this crisis has given more to the, the vaccine development initiative than probably more than 50 percent of the country, more than 75 percent of the countries in the U.N. Uh, he's that big a player on the global stage. Facebook, with more adherence than Christianity, is more relevant to atrocities and whether they get prevented than 90% of the governments All right. in the UN. So I'm going to stop you there because that's what I want to talk about in the next section about what impact uh, tech companies and others have on this and how you deal with them because they are, in a way, nation states themselves. We're here with Samantha Power, the former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. Support for Decoder comes from SAP Business AI. It's all over the internet. AI this, AI that. Your friend is turning his cat into a Monet painting. Your coworker used a chatbot to write a sonnet about pancakes. AI isn't the stuff of science fiction anymore, but it's also more than the gimmicks we see on a day-to-day basis. If you're a business owner, AI can offer real solutions to help you scale and innovate. It might be time to check out SAP Business AI. SAP Business AI can help you automate repetitive tasks, optimize inventory management and supply chain analysis, and identify opportunities for growth in your operations. SAP Business AI can help you with finance, sales, marketing, human resources, procurement, supply chain, and so much more. Like guarding against fraud with AI-assisted anomaly detection, or receive data-driven prescriptive guidance at critical decision points. They even have a generative AI roadmap to help you discover upcoming and cutting-edge innovations for your business. Who knows what innovations are around the corner? Revolutionary technology? Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Learn more at sap.com slash AI. Support for Decoder comes from Green Chef. If you could make a single change in your life that made you feel better and got you performing at your highest level, you'd do it, right? That's what makes Green Chef such a no-brainer. The meal kits offer a ton of delicious options that make it easy to eat cleaner and feel better without spending hours in the kitchen. They'll deliver everything you need to make convenient, wholesome, tasty meals right to your doorstep with more than 80 meal options available every single week. Green Chef's menu is packed with farm-fresh ingredients you might not find elsewhere, like figs, artichokes, and sustainably sourced seafood. Plus, their menu now includes a ton of science-backed gut and brain health recipes, which were developed with dietitians to boost energy and immunity while improving digestion. Go to greenchef.com 60decoder and use code 60decoder to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's greenchef.com slash 60decoder and use code 60decoder to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. We're here with Samantha Power, the former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, ambassador Power, one of the things you just talked about was very clear, something I talk about a lot, is these companies have never been more powerful. Their owners have never been wealthier, uh, and they've never been more unaccountable. Um, it's one of my themes. So it's, it's my sort of big theme song, essentially. But one, at the same time, they've never been more important to the world order, such as misinformation, uh, dealing with misinformation, dealing with state actors attacking the United States with misinformation or disinformation. Um, I guess it's disinformation, really, which is they they get traded back, but it's really disinformation. Talk a little bit about that, this, this sort of growth of these tech nation states, which are critically important. You can see it in this pandemic. Amazon has been a big player in helping people get groceries, you know, Zoom or whatever, just different, all different tech players are getting more and more powerful through this pandemic and showing how important they are to the operation of the world. And you were talking about involving them in 
governance. Talk a little bit about this, because these people are not governed by anybody but themselves. Yes. Well, first, let me say one uh, or offer one positive thought in this domain, because I don't have very many positive thoughts. (laughs) Okay, I love some. I have a positive (laughs) one. Let me start with one, which is that the Taiwan model, what Taiwan has done, you know, I mean, Taiwan has a former hacker uh, as their digital minister. The fact that they even have a digital minister is really interesting, but their kind of crack multi-sectoral approach to suppressing misinformation is, I think, something that a lot of us can learn from. Um, And back to that, again, that idea of a coalition of democracies or caucusing together and fighting together against some of the more nefarious trends that we're confronting. And one reason, though, is that they have, as I understand it, a centralized process that involves civil society, this crowdsourcing of fact-checking that occurs, um, the so very social media companies that have acted in so many domains in such an unaccountable way within our borders with ramifications all around the world, they're actually chipping in and part of working with various ministries at smothering misinformation or inoculating uh, listeners and viewers and readers um, uh, before something has has gotten viral. So basically just take the, the poison out of the pill that has been planted. And of course they've had to because they have China flooding the zone um, and have had that and have years of a head start in many ways on us in figuring out how to deal with that, the extent of pummeling uh, with misinformation. Um, and so they came out of the recent election I think seeing that, and they, they have fines and other things on people who, who traffic in, in misinformation and that may run afoul of, of some of our laws and standards, but, but by and large, there's a lot to learn from and how they have folded in the tech companies in ways that other countries have not been able to, I think is interesting. As, a, as somebody, again, who thinks in terms of multilateral responses, you know, I also think you know, heightened liability of the kind that Australia has now put in place, I don't think it's really been exercised, but as a footstep effect, on the companies themselves, that and the German law, I think are really interesting. And so we have a lot to learn. But as it relates to this pandemic, I think it's- Oh, in general, you can talk about in general. I mean, it's really interesting because other countries surrounding the U.S. have acted uh, from Australia to New Zealand to Europe to many, many countries have acted in ways that are, and Taiwan, in ways that are very- they make sense, and we haven't. And these are the companies that are located here. These companies are located in the United States. But you know, and again, it's hard to unpack the the very. You you have done it, I know, on your show. But to unpack the 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 number of reasons, it's sort of overdetermined why it's so laissez-faire here. But a major reason is at least it correlates with Congress being largely dysfunctional as a whole. And so the fact that it doesn't regulate there is consistent with regulating it very passing laws in very few areas, unfortunately, these days. But it's it's a much bigger story than that. I think it's interesting that I think there are a couple of dimensions of Facebook's response to the pandemic that are that are interesting. First, the aggressiveness with which they are policing lies and misinformation. Hey, Mark Zuckerberg, there's proof of concept. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's doable. Yeah. You can do it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, there are hard lines to draw, but there, you know, are certain things that are so clearly on one side of the line. And if you, if it is absolutely true that this is something with life and death consequences, uh, a pandemic necessarily is of that nature, but the health of our democracy 
has life and death consequences as well. So that I think that's one dimension of this. And I wonder, I sort of pray that there will be some spillover into the otherwise, you know, kind of um, reification of neutral of alleged neutrality, which of course is not real neutrality. So, so that's on 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 that. Um, I also think the privacy security <laughs> balance, the cost benefit, you know, is very tricky on something like this, uh, like the economic public health sort of integrated assessment that public officials are trying to make. I think it's noteworthy that at least up to this point, if I'm not mistaken, Facebook is still very much telegraphing that this is opt-in technology, that, that you know, if, you, if your information is to be shared so that, you know, the movement of the virus is to be anticipated so that hospitals can be more prepared, that's something that you have to opt into. Sure. In many parts of the world, you don't get that choice. Right. And right. It, you no, know, they're just doing it in much of yeah. the world, actually. They're, so they're it's sort of interesting it. that, you know, that it's almost like a correction, a course correction by Facebook on, where privacy has been not protected sufficiently, where lies have not been combated sufficiently. And now it's like there's this pandemic carve out <laughs> for these principles to be applied. And so maybe uh, from that, with proof of concept, that can either give people in Congress some ideas or it will be clear that the, that these are uh, far more achievable standards to apply writ large uh, than than the major companies have indicated. One of the things is you were in the Obama administration when these companies were getting as powerful as the other. And I just had Gene Sperling on, who was who has also become critical of the tech companies. And I asked the obvious question: Well, you were kind of there when you could have done something about it. Now, now you were in the in the UN and other sectors, but you did you anticipate the power that the you know when you you have incidents in Myanmar, or India, or you could start to see the massive impact of social media, for example, or or just Google owning 90% of the search market, this, this power growing all over the globe. did And you saw noise from Europe, you know, all the regulators there were starting to, you know, sound the alarms. Why didn't the Obama administration get smarter on this quicker? They were sort of the technological people, although I wouldn't say they were as much as was put out there by the media. But, you know, there there was no action. There was no action at the FTC. There was no action in Congress. There was no action at the White House. And did you start to see the impact of these things or what, what happened? Because nothing did, from what I can tell, to pull them in. And maybe these things take time to grow, just as they did during Teddy Roosevelt's time or whenever. Was there no worries, uh, you know, especially from an international point of view, where you would see things happening? Or did you not? Did you not see it? You were you're all focused, obviously, on important issues like sorry, like Syria and everything else. But the impact of technology was growing and growing and growing through through those years. Completely, and I think you know I mentioned earlier the Open Government Partnership, which some of your listeners may know. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very good example of the uh, lens through which, for most of the Obama administration, many of us would have viewed these companies. I think very consistent with public opinion. Right. polling in the U.S., right? It's like people love uh, the tech companies. Yes, <laughs> and and or or just you know kind of I don't know drank the Kool Aid or just enjoyed using them ourselves or saw the utility of them ourselves. But there's no question that I think it snuck up on many people the potential for abuses on these platforms. And let me let me offer just a couple kind of anecdotes in in that in that regard. I mean, the first, well, let me just say. I think from the national security community standpoint, the emphasis on 
technology and the and the the cyber nexus was was prioritized. I mean, way more than, of course, in this administration, right from the start. I mean, an understanding of the desire of nefarious actors, whether state-based or non-state, um, to penetrate our systems, to steal intellectual property and and trade secrets, and which was uh, where the focus was. On so that I just IP, want, yeah, I do. I yes, well, IP, but also, I mean, secrets, core, yeah, yes. Secret. Mess up the grid. I mess up the grid. Those kind of things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, which is no. I no. mean, the mess up the grid is is right. a major piece of business. And indeed, I was UN ambassador when the attack on Sony occurred. Right. And it was really striking then. You know the extent to which you because the way the UN works is the UN Security Council is the body that polices notionally uh, international peace and security. And just to really contemplate the fact that this attack, which caused, you know, I don't even remember the, the, the figures in the end, but tens of millions of damage, uh, dollars worth of damage to Sony and shutting down the system, not notwithstanding, and, and in addition to all the reputational damage of the leaking of the, the emails and the this and that. But, but that was really also a reminder of how not fit for purpose our international institutions are, because it would have to go to other countries and say, we should treat this as almost as if it's a physical, as, as if it is a physical hard power attack of the traditional kind. And the answer, you know, I begins was, no, this is different. It's cyber. It's like, well, wait, okay, true. People weren't killed in the same way. Uh, but in terms of loss of livelihood and this and that, this is, this is, um, and so that was one, you know, where I, I, I was really struck by how misaligned, our norms and our institutions were toward this. But this is, again, in the realm of the threat that was taken very seriously. Then um, in the Situation Room in the fall of 2016, when we were briefed on what mm-hmm. Russia yep. was doing, the emphasis, again, because of the alignment, I think, of background and expertise with you know how things were briefed and understood, the emphasis in the earliest phase was very much on interference in state election rolls, you know, kind of poking around in voter registration rolls. Sure. The, again, that physical penetration, cybersecurity of the kind that had been broadly understood over. And there was, uh, you know, extensive discussion about hacking of emails and releasing emails but where you'd be surprised at the, at, again, at least relatively speaking, that there was less discussion, there was discussion, but less discussion was on the flood of misinformation, which probably had more to do with voter suppression, turnout, you know, Obama tr- voters flipping to being Trump voters, and especially with the customization uh, thrown in. And if you ask me why that, I mean, partly it's about who has the data and, and who's actually you know, who, who can monitor that? I mean, the government, despite all of the, the understanding of the government's intrusive powers, its ability to, to be able to understand at scale what Russia was doing, mm-hmm. I think, was not there at that point. I don't know if it's there uh, now. I doubt it. I think F- Facebook and others hoard that data to themselves. And so I don't think scale was appropriately understood. But also, and this is kind of very human, but very unfortunate, if you yourself do not control the lever Mm-hmm. to make a difference, you're more inclined to go and emphasize and, and focus your policy mm-hmm. uh, efforts and energies on where you can. 
And so on the question of can you convene states, I mean, we didn't even have jurisdiction over what was happening in state voter registration rules because that's a state issue. But convening other officials, that kind of thing, reaching out to Silicon Valley, sure. But again, it's it was sort of within their purview. And so and that came so late. Had that come earlier, I think they're in the in the wake of that, I mean, there's a vast number of reforms that one would have imagined pushing, but it came late enough in the presidency, that kind of wake-up call as to how these platforms were being abused. And even the intelligence assessment that was done in the closing days of the Obama administration compared to what we collectively would know a year later about what Russia had been doing, mm-hmm. it, there, there's a pretty substantial gap. In other words, the learning continued right through that retrospective learning and then learning about what foreign actors were doing to use those platforms also to sow divisions on Black Lives Matter and on gun rights and gun control. And, right. and you know, every social cleavage Russia is interested in exacerbating. Absolutely. And now we just, have China with the pandemic playing on those platforms 100%. in the United States to an extent we've never seen them uh, operate before and still no levers in government, not a lot of curiosity or interest in this government and not even steps taken on the physical infrastructure side um, by Congress, despite all the election bills uh, pending. I, I agree with you. I think China right now is really quite, I just did a whole show on the activity of China in this area um, and struck by how much uh, propaganda they're shoving to a billion people around the world on these issues, on the pandemic itself. But one of the things I was struck that Russia lost the Cold War. I mean, that's sort of the, you know, idiot version of the whole thing. But they lost the Cold War, but they won the digital war. They this they found a way to get in and beat us without having to have tanks. They lost the Berlin Wall. They lost all the physical parts of it. And then we were able to infiltrate in a much in, less expensive way um, by doing this and did it quite deftly in a way that just to, to create discord. I'm wondering, though, if you think the the, the Edward Snowden revelations— put a break between government and tech because there had been a stronger relationship. But I think the prism, the revelations around prism and other, you know, going into Google's files in China or elsewhere, because they did that internationally, was it had an impact? I, from my vantage point at the UN, did not, did not see that. I don't think at all. I mean, I didn't see, oh, we were heading in one direction and the ties were getting deep. I think, I think it was, um, I'd, I'd never heard a policy debate at the cabinet level where it was, well, now we got to balance things differently in light of uh, the, you know, these revelations and so forth. Um, but uh, others may, who were in, you know, these technical circles might have, a, might have a different impression. I mean, I will say, just as a, and, and this is probably more of an admission than, than um you know, that I even <laughs> should make about my mindset in the, the U.S. government. But when I went, left the Obama administration in January 2017 and went back to teaching, uh, I had taught at Harvard uh, Kennedy School students for years before I went into government. I had taught U.S. foreign policy and, and human rights. And I went back and I thought, OK, you know, I'm not just going to do that. We're not in the same unipolar moment by any stretch of the imagination. And so I'm going to teach um, geopolitics and human rights and look at the range of actors. And of course, China now uh, occupies a huge portion of the course that I teach. But as I was pulling my syllabus together, I, I said to myself, I said, well, you know, okay, we got the 193 countries that comprise the UN. What, in terms of GDP of the 193 countries, 
if we equate, you know, kind of a company's worth with the GDP of countries, where would Facebook rank in the Near UN the top. in terms of... Near the um, top. And yeah, it would be above 167 of the 193 countries in the yep. UN. And then, of course, what, what began to unfold was what you mentioned earlier, which is the violence in, uh, again, the genocide against the Rohingya, the violence mm-hmm. in Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm. And there was a Sri Lankan presidential aide who had, I thought, the you know just a wonderful distillation, a disturbing distillation of, of how these platforms are being exploited. Um, but his, his line was, maybe you've heard it, uh, the germs were ours, but Facebook was the wind. Yep. And what, as I began to dig into it in ways, uh, you know, again, that government officials should be doing in every, in every democracy, but it, it, what is so striking, you know, we, we turn on our computer and we may go to Facebook or we may go to Twitter. We may go, I mean, when you go to Sri Lanka or you go to Burma, it is everywhere. It is the internet. It is yeah. the internet. You turn your computer yeah. and you're in fate. You're in that echo chamber. Yeah, Philippines. And, and the fact that these companies, you know, so eager to to grow and grow and grow and spread, but that they could grow without having in place the infrastructure to be able to respond to the nine one one that came when mm-hmm. and, and and none of the language experts on the ground. Yeah. Often they didn't even have an office. I mean, they don't, I don't think they had an office in Sri Lanka or in Burma no. when it when was both struck in both it places. was both and, sloppy, sloppy and greedy. It was astonishing. But, but those astonishing. countries have no leverage, and they right. you know they, like I mean compared to again where does Sri Lanka on that map of worth within the mm-hmm. UN? Where is Burma's leverage uh, mm-hmm. going to come from? Not that the military necessarily. Uh, would would you know which is exploiting again the the domination of this platform? But you know I think that this is where it's both the domestic dimension, which has gotten a lot of attention, I think, in the United States, but also what how our regulatory and oversight powers have to be brought to bear, because those other countries don't have the juice, don't have the jurisdiction, don't have the oversight, they don't have any say. And in some countries, they it's useful to them. I mean, and, I always exactly. say nobody yeah. loves uh, Facebook like a dictator. Anyway, uh, when we get back, we're going to talk about the international problems facing uh, this country uh, and, and the world going forward. We're here with Ambassador Samantha Power. When we get back, we're going to talk about where she sees things going. Right now, businesses are facing tough choices. Do you cut costs or drive growth? Solve for today or build for tomorrow? Do you satisfy your shareholders or satisfy your customers? The answer is yes. You don't have to choose. With the intelligent platform for digital business from ServiceNow, you can say yes to unifying your existing systems and yes to accelerating growth. Visit servicenow.com to see how we can help you put yes to work. The world works with ServiceNow. Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. So their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. That means they can better connect you with your Jackie. And listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We're here with Samantha Power, the former ambassador, uh, U.S. ambassador to the United Nations from 2013 to 2017. She's also wrote a wonderful book. It's a best-selling memoir called The Education of an Idealist, in which she, you know, she mixed a lot of personal stuff in with uh, running around the world. It, it did feel a lot like a... Um, uh, like a TV show in some ways, um, you know, you're breastfeeding and doing all kinds of stuff like that. The premise of the book is that you sort of became a realist, but talk a little bit about the mixing of your personal philosophy as it changed. And then I'd love you to get sort of what you think is important going forward that we have to focus on from this experience and from your experiences. Yeah, I mean, I definitely didn't have the arc uh, that maybe the title of the book suggests, The Education of an Idealist. You know, I did not get educated to believe that the world was cruel, dangerous, and unaddressable uh, in its in its vices. Um, quite the contrary. I mean, as I said at the beginning, just I, I saw in, in venue after venue how individuals often made just small changes, but nonetheless, as President Obama likes to say, Better is good. Yeah, but <laughs> you didn't like that. That wasn't be, your philosophy. Uh, it, it, well, it's where I, where you land. Where you got. You know, it's where you landed. It's where you land. But I mean, better is better is harder than worse sometimes, yeah. especially with some of the forces that we've been talking about at play. But you yourself wrote about how you didn't want to become one of those people who were like, Ugh, I'll take this much genocide here for a win over here. Oh, but I mean, I didn't become one of those people. I definitely didn't become one of those people. No, it's about harnessing, it's about seeing the constraints, you know, that when Mm -hmm. you go from being a journalist and a flamethrower on the outside uh, to being, uh, you know, working on a political campaign, Mm -hmm. you know, I I imploded on a political campaign, had to resign in disgrace, learn some lessons about how to deal with the media that I only sometimes apply, uh, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, then going into seeing the kind of jockeying for access and so forth, and then just saying, this is my world now. I better figure out how to get access or I better figure out how to make coalitions with people I may disagree with fervently. I'll give you an example, just, you know, on military assistance to really repressive regimes. I was often in the camp of urging that the spigot be dried up on the grounds that we weren't getting as much out of the relationships as these repressive regimes, let's say in Egypt, uh, we're getting. And yet my number one ally in terms of trying to increase the number of Iraqi refugees coming to this country were the same individuals who I was battling with over Egyptian military, namely uh, Pentagon officials who wanted their translators and their interpreters, the people who've been there for them on the ground to be able to access our refugee program. And so the book is the education is about learning how to prosecute your ideals in a world that I didn't need any reminders, you know, is messy and and cruel in all kinds of but ways. You, but, but you were often the one from the book. You were often on the room. I mean, the exchanges with Obama are very funny around uh, being sanctimonious, but keep talking, um, being, uh, <laughs> you know, being unrealistic, but keep talking, that kind of stuff. Do you, 
you know, we have an administration who's almost totally cynical, it feels like, like has no idealism or uh, just sort of prosecutes this idea. There's tough guys all over the world. That's the way it is, that kind of thing. And there's certainly that viewpoint. And it's I, not to say Donald Trump is right about anything, but there are really awful people around the world. So what of it is sort of his response. How do you square that circle with with your ideas, which is there are those people in the world, but... Well, there are those people in the world and I guess my, a, a core belief that I have that Donald Trump doesn't share among several mm-hmm. dozen, mm-hmm. thousand, yeah. uh, would be, you know, that that our fates are more entwined uh, than, than he would suggest. And so whether that's conflict that gives rise to mass displacement that in turn, you know, takes over Europe and changes European politics, potentially for a generation, maybe more. That, that migration flow in 2014, 2015 certainly was a but-for factor in the Brexit vote, which um, has uh, lasting implications for our interests and our partnership uh, with the United Kingdom. Um, so seeing so that— had, con- So you're just saying in that case, had we had a no-fly zone, it might have presented that, might have had more negotiations, might have, might have, kind of— Yeah, I mean, you know, again, it's impossible to know— it's because we can't run history differently a second time. But but my point is that the idea that what happens in other countries is not our business is both would be sad, but it's also dumb. Uh, you know, it is as the pandemic shows. I mean, what, you know, remember Trump's early praise of the Chinese government and President Xi is doing a wonderful job, a splendid job, with no curiosity really, because there were another set of interests in play: trade negotiations, his own personal chemistry as he sees it with Xi. And those took center stage rather than the the welfare of people inside China and the internal handling of the pandemic. And thus, we lost very and here valuable we are. time. And, and here we are. So I guess, it, 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 I mean, the lessons, I, and it doesn't feel like at all a sellout to me, but I did uh, latch on to this idea of shrink the change, which is a version of better is good. And, and I think I, I landed there, and this comes from a book called Switch uh, by the Heath Brothers, which uh, you may know is a wonderful book, but um, on making change when change is hard. But, you know, in settling on something that is within your sights, it, it, is, a, it is empowering in a way that when you look at climate change or you look at the pandemic or you look at mass atrocities or, or the human rights recession in the world, we're now 14 straight years of human rights in decline around the world, and that's just going to get worse in the near term. Uh, with people taking advantage of the of the pandemic and the emergency powers and the postponing of elections and so forth, so th- those trends are really daunting. And you know what what is any one person going to do about that? And and I felt that way even in the cabinet of the president of the United States. And so now as a citizen, I feel that even more. And so figuring out what is the slice of that that any one of us can have a hand in, and whether that's you know something expressive like canceling your Facebook account because you're tired of, of you know, seeing political lies and, and willful misinformation. Or when I was in the government, you know, I couldn't solve the human rights crisis. It was way above my pay grade, but uh, nor could President Obama and all the leaders in the world. It was just, it's a really complex set of dynamics. But we simply made a list of 20 female political prisoners around the world and said, okay, maybe we can actually take advantage of social media to run campaigns around each of these women to see if we can get them out of jail. 
And in the end, 16 of the 20 women uh, were released from jail in part because of the American and the international pressure. That's nothing compared to what one imagines the superpower being able to do. But for every one of those women and the communities that they went back to, it, it was not nothing. And I think that those examples, which I offer a lot of in the book, because Right now, there's, again, a temptation to think sort of or to be demotivated in a way. Yeah, because it's so overwhelming. Yeah. Especially with polarization. I mean, I think more right. in the post-truth uh, dimension of, of the current, our current predicament. I think, I think of all, because that's the kind of terra firma, if we can't get the factual predicates in place, the idea of mobilizing sound public policy in an enduring way is, is hard for people uh, you know, to, to imagine. And then it's easy to just go watch the last dance again and again <laughs> and, and, and not focus on, on what ails us, but we need, we need people to get out and vote. I mean, 7% of the people who voted for Obama in 2012 stayed home in 2016, you know, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. a lot so, of what we're dealing with now is contingent on that election and that fact, not everything, but a lot. Tell me what you think from a from a global perspective you think are important areas. Right now, obviously, Saudi Arabia is in the news. I write a lot about the thugs of Saudi Arabia and how much money tech takes from them. And now they're being, they're more heavily investing in tech now and media uh, because it's, there's cheap prices and stuff like that. And I've had on uh, Ben Hubbard to talk about MBS and, and others. It, where are the threats? Is it somewhere like a Saudi Arabia or is it, I, to me, China seems should be our 100% focus as a, as a nation uh, in terms of rivalry. And at the same time, getting along with China too, like, because you can't really be in another Cold War with them in a different way. You have to sort of figure out a way to cooperate and also oppose at the same time. Because um, you certainly don't want a lot of the stuff they're doing around surveillance, AI, robotics, to be in the dominant position. So tell me what you think the key international issues are. No, I, I, I largely I largely agree with you. I mean, I would I think among the sort of trends that are most worrying, the one that I mentioned about democratic backsliding, particularly within established democracies like India and of course the United States, but also just a human rights recession more broadly, where each year you see on a variety of metrics uh, you know, the use of allegations of fake news, the crackdowns on civil society, you know, the kind of explosive growth of NGOs and, and other non-traditional forms of democratic accountability really being stymied. And, and that's where China comes in, because this is 14 years of, the, of that trend coinciding a lot, of course, with the aftermath of the financial recession starting in 2008. So that's 12 of those 14 years have been in the wake of that crisis. And you can only imagine if that correlation or, or causation you mm-hmm. know, took place then, what it's going to be like potentially and how much more those illiberal forces are going to be strengthened, the nationalistic forces, what you call the isolationist forces, by an economic jolt that goes far beyond what we dealt with and what we and the world dealt with in 2008, 2009, 2010. So, so I think those, you know, imagining how those get worse. And then in that period, 2008, 9, 10, you had China in a much more recessive posture. It was before President Xi had taken center stage. It was still in the hide your capabilities and bide your time period. Mm -hmm. And now you have China strutting around the global stage, taking advantage of the U.S. uh, departure and really unimpeded. And and so as we enter this period, 
so far, you don't yet see them. You see them exporting the surveillance technologies and enterprising autocrats and illiberal forces, even within democracies, seizing upon those uh, that arsenal uh, in order to strengthen their uh, control of their population. So that's already a major impact, as you say, that China is having. But where we could get and where their surge in misinformation now within the United States is deeply worrying is where they start to pick winners and really try to aid governments themselves in suppressing civil society. They aid transactionally already with these technologies, but actually interfering in other countries, despite all of their talk of sovereignty and the right of uh, of every country to develop the way it wants. And, and you could see, you know, democratic opposition forces, you know, just not being able to withstand those kinds of pressures. Um, so, you know, what you've had in, in the last couple of years is dueling uh, dynamics in the world. On the one hand, these illiberal forces like in Hungary, Poland, the Philippines, you know, enabled and, and uh, often boosted by President Trump's actions and rhetoric and partnerships with some of those countries. So that the U.S. role is not trivial in that. Uh, so it's it, 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 the, 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 those forces have come about by virtue of some of the same forces that exist within the United States in terms of disillusionment with the economic globalization and, mm-hmm. and people left behind feeling they want to go in a different direction, resentment and elites. So it's coming out of the same forces, but it's also then the U.S. being the superpower, we have uh, impact. And, and I think some of those forces have been strengthened by some of the policies and statements of the president. But at the same time, you have the kind of bad news, you know, ledger. You also have more public protests having happened in the last two years than in any two-year period in modern recorded history. And so you have people, and and in some ways there's a little bit of an overlap because some of it is the same disillusionment with elites, the same frustration with corruption, um, and, and the same kind of populism on one level. But in many parts of the world, it is pushing in a more democratic direction and in pursuit of more checks and balances and more uh, right of political protests and so forth. And what's worrying about the pandemic is that as these forces are dueling, the ability to gather, of course, uh, in person is now blunted, a gift uh, to illiberal forces. The argument for postponing elections can be science-based, right, Mm -hmm. in terms of not wanting to risk a contagion. And so I think the question for for people who are worried about the direction that our own country is going in and and that the world is going in along these uh, on this axis is we know how the bad guys are going to adapt. What's our answer? And and there maybe that's, you know, the place where the the, you know, the, the issues that you think about and work on. I mean, those are the tools that were once hailed because of their great organizing potential their great virtual organizing potential, um, it, they, those tools have been used uh, to potent effect to bring people out into the streets. But what now? Uh, how are civil society actors and, and Joe Biden and his campaign and the rest of us going to adapt? Uh, because we know how easy it is to centralize power at a moment like this, but to disperse power and to hold power accountable. That is the challenge, I think, that is incumbent on us. And that's where the shrinking the change idea becomes so important because right. it's every right. vote, it's every donation, it's every uh, every stand that one can take within the confines of one's new normal. Uh, it matters. 
Yeah, well, one of the books I like very much is Brad Smith's Tools and Weapons, the idea of technology. It's still a tool. It doesn't have to be a weapon. It can be, and it has been used effectively as one. And he was he talks about this sort of around the world, the idea of um, it's incredible that you're getting advice from Microsoft, which used to be the evil empire, but here we are. The idea that it doesn't have to, it, it's still, when I entered the internet, it was all hopeful. And of course, you then had Arab Spring and everything else. It can still do that. It just hasn't been used. It's been used for other effects because uh, these companies have, um, you know, these are the companies that pioneered the word going viral. Just think about that. We have to retire going viral. That's my column in the Times this week, by the way. It's like, it's time to retire that because it's such a, it's such a, a toxic word now, but it always was a toxic word. It never, the idea of disease as, as a business plan, it doesn't seem to be one that I would suggest. Um, I want to finish up by asking you, here it is, January 2021, say Biden wins. You're sitting in the Oval Office right now. You're now going to tell him the first thing to do on the international stage. Now, I know it's complex, and I know there's 20 things you do on the international stage, but if you had to pick one as this educated idealist, what would it be? Um, I, I would have a different answer every day, probably, because I have a long list, but I, I think convening a summit of democracies, of accountable leaders, none of them perfect, to strategize, to incentivize. You'd be amazed from my own experience at how when a leader doesn't get an invitation to a party yeah. like that, the <laughs> links I go to, what do, yeah. what do I have to rescind? You know, and we, st- you know, even post-Trump, uh, we've lost an awful lot. And, and the handling, the technical handling of the pandemic, the ideology overlay for sure, but the technical handling is is probably the most damaging thing that has that has happened in terms of just perceptions of our competence uh, mm-hmm. as a democracy. But but even having lost a lot, the gust of breaths of relief, uh, mm-hmm. you know, when a government that believes in common security and common humanity and believes in science and facts and evidence and and even that believes in in bipartisanship, even if we might we might be the last to believe it, but believes in making an effort in that direction. I think, um, I think for the, for the world and, and again, those countries are willing to hold themselves accountable to their people, willing to be challenged, uh, by civil society, willing to be regulated, um, by parliaments, uh, and legislatures. And, and I, I think that show is going to be very significant and it would be the, the most important dimension of it is functional. Yeah. Which is then, okay, how do we hive off this set of challenges we now have to work on, given what China's been doing over the course of the last four years, uh, without much in the way of contestation? All right. That is an answer you get from an idealist. I know you know my book, which was uh, Diary of Education of a Pessimist. That's me. Anyway, I really do appreciate your thoughts here. It's uh, <laughs> I am. I'm an optimistic pessimist. That's what I am. I'm not sure what you are yet. I'll have to think that about that. Anyway, I really I'm not, appreciate- I'm not big on labels. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I know. Not, I'm not crazy about labels. But. Yeah. In any case, I think you still remain an idealist, which is really lovely. Anyway, we really appreciate you coming on the show, Ambassador Power. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Ambassador Power's book is called The Education of an Idealist. It came out in the fall, but it's still available. It's a tremendously good read about uh, the struggles of figuring out how to govern, really, and how to how to conduct yourself in the world. Um, where can people find you online? Um, I have a Twitter, uh, a Twitter You're good handle at where people people are very mean to me, generally, so yes. nice people could follow me on Twitter. <laughs> that would be amazing. 
<laughs> you can take it. You can it would take offset. it. I don't block though. I don't know why I, I don't, don't block I, but, people. Yeah, you gotta the, see. block, but it, that just when the so world when, when people can, No, when people when the world changes, I will teach you how to handle people on Twitter. I'm a professional yeah. tweeter. Yeah, I'll show yes. you how to do it. It's easy. Anyway, everybody tweet something nice to Ambassador Power. It's please, at, at please. Sam Power or Samantha Power? Uh, great question. I had to change Samantha J. Power, at Samantha okay. J. Power. Tweet something nice to her today. Anyway, if you liked this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend and make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap a link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. Special thanks to Squadcast.fm. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then. Support for Decoder comes from SAP Business AI. Imagine the most tedious task you have at work. Is it making all those manual adjustments to your weekly spending reports? Or sending essentially the same emails over and over again? If you're looking for ways to innovate your business, it might be time to consider SAP Business AI. With dozens of potential integrations to optimize sales, procurement, finance, human resources, and more, SAP Business AI may be able to improve your business operations inside and out. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Learn more at sap.com AI.